China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Thomas Gatley, a China strategist at Gavkal Dragonomics. Today we'll be discussing his recent report, Reshaping Corporate China. Thomas, thanks for joining the podcast. My pleasure. First question for all guests is autobiographical, which is I'd love to know how you got interested in China. And then second, how did you build a career as a analyst of China's political economy? Sure. So, I mean, as with quite a lot of the sort of older China hands, I don't come from a academically economic or financial background. I was actually an English literature with a medieval focus. So that was my entry point into the industry. But then there not being a ton of jobs in medieval English literature, I went to work for JP Morgan coming out of college and did some pretty interesting stuff in a structuring and solutions team that I suppose I was hired into on the basis that my math ability at the time was basically GCSE level. So like 15-year-old level, I hadn't done any A-level. And so all of the kind of financial industry interviews were essentially testing mental math at that level. And so I was that was very familiar to me. It was really up in my mind. See, I did that for a few years. Very interesting, but global financial crisis intervened. And so it became uh, not a very pleasant place to be. And so then I came out to, to Beijing in 2010 to do my MBA at Tsinghua University, in the international MBA program. And then read some stuff by, by Arthur Kroeber and co at Dragonomics and thought it was excellent and got in touch with them, started off interning, doing all kinds of odd jobs and so then progressed into writing research. And that's what I've been doing ever since. We're here to discuss this really great client report that you put out, which was actually flagged to me as I told Arthur when I reached out to get his blessing to to bother you to see if you could come on the podcast. I had done so because I had had about four or five clients of Gavkal Dragonomics reach out and say, you, you should have Thomas on to talk about this because uh, the report was so so good, which, which I agree. And so we're going to dive into this today because it's a really exemplary and exhaustive look at the state of Chinese corporates, their ability to raise capital, what the state of their profits are, how they're being affected by industrial policy. But because we're recording this on August 21st at a moment where there's acute anxiety and a surge of commentary on the state of China's economy after just day after day of negative news coming out, I wanted to take advantage of of your time here to ask for your assessment. I was going to call this a hot take, but this is what you do for a living. So this wouldn't qualify as a hot take. But I, you know, I think the big questions on everyone's mind is, is this the beginning of the end? China has been able to pull rabbits out of hats for decades. There's a, a debate about, is this the convergence of deep structural forces? Or is this a cyclical forces that would the right, with a little bit of time and some policy, the right policy interventions, China's going to be able to navigate its way out of this? Is it a combination of those? So if I could just get your sense of how bad is this? How much agency does Beijing have to steer through or or around this? And do you see, has the big China story just shifted inexorably 
which seems to be some of the vibe I'm getting as people are processing news of the past few weeks and months. Yeah, it's a tricky one because I think our house take in general is that we're not on the brink of an imminent financial crisis in, in a sort of layman model for basically reasons that are attached to the fact that the Chinese financial system is just a very different beast to the US, certainly to the US back at that period. Specifically, that all of the vast majority of the banking system is controlled explicitly by the state, both through shareholdings, but also through a lot more in terms of you know window guidance and, and informal channels. And that there's been quite a lot of work done to disconnect and disentangle the shadow sections of the financial system from the big banks. And I think that in general, that that's been done reasonably well. Um, and so. The picture at the moment when you see news coming out like the you know, the collapse of Zhongrong Trust, these kind of shadow pseudo bank institutions which are exposed to the property sector, like the the bag holders at the end of the day for those are going to be basically households, wealthy households who've invested in trust products and WMPs. It's not the same as it would have been back, you know, let's say five or six years ago, where there was all of this entanglement with the formal banking system too. So. You've got that going on in terms of the linkages. The second part being that basically the banks can and have been delaying recognition of um, of losses on their balance sheet for a long while, and there is basically no catalyst that will force them to do so if the state doesn't force them to do so. So you've got basically deposits trapped, all your liabilities are these sticky household liabilities that can't really go anywhere else, and actually where they've been getting more and more and more of them because since people haven't been buying housing. And then on the other side, on the asset side, yeah, there's probably a, a considerable amount of non-performing loans, particularly at the moment and in the property sector, but they just don't, they don't have to, to recognize them fast enough for that to kind of spiral out of control in a, in a weeks or months or probably even quarters or years uh, timescale. So that's the, the good news. The bad news is that I think that you can have a systemic problem or even a systemic crisis without it being a financial crisis. So the systemic problem set that we're basically facing in China right now is that the property sector is in really dire straits. And it's very difficult to over-egg the pudding on that. You've got property sales at less than half of 2019 levels. Property starts at about 40% of 2019 levels. Liquidity situation for developers is absolutely terrible, as you can see from Country Garden defaulting even now on onshore debt. So they're, they're cutting all of their anywhere that they can stop the cash bleed, they're, they're doing it. And at some point, that's also going to translate into stalled ongoing projects and completions falling off too. And that was exactly the kind of negative feedback loop that started this property crisis back in Q3 of last year to begin with. The households saw Evergrande in particular not stalling on projects, not delivering houses that they paid in advance for, and then panicking. And they just stopped buying new houses, not only from Evergrande, but from other developers they're worried about as well. So as we as and when we get into that kind of death loop again, starting at a much lower level of sales than was even the case during that crisis, then whatever what developer liquidity does exist just dries up even further. So there's a self-fulfilling doom loop there. So that's the property situation. And the problem is that the central government policy function, reaction function is so slow and insufficient at the moment because they are and have been increasingly operating in this ideological straitjacket. So Back in the good days, you talked about the the power of this like black cat, white cat pragmatism. And that's really been overtaken increasingly by a sort of resurgent moralistic Marxist view of the economy where you have good and bad economic actors. 
And that yoked to this somewhat self-deluding notion that the good government-driven tech investment can and will, in the short term, replace bad property speculation as the primary driver of growth. And so if you think about, if you look at the world in, in those terms, then you can justify a sort of, I don't know, like Victorian or Austrian or even maybe tradition, traditional Chinese medicine analogous belief that actually economic pain and suffering are a good thing as long as they're happening to the bad guys and that the good guys won't worry. And you actually see this explicitly coming out of the government so that, that they won't worry about housing prices falling, for instance, if you're a household who's just bought your house to live in. And that none of that will affect their income or their willingness to consume, even as their like sole retirement savings vehicle sheds value. So there's all of this kind of going on that is just creating a really bad situation that is feeding back into itself that is very much stemming from the property sector. You know, this is not, you know, the entirety of the Chinese economy being kind of intrinsically fragile or a house of cards a week it's it's a property phenomenon but it's a property phenomenon that is affecting everything really fast and which the central government just doesn't really seem to have a grasp on and i think the extremely disappointing translation of the of the rate cut on monday is the most recent example of that i would love the irony if china in this increasingly sort of marxist moralistic view of markets it was ludwig von mises and f.a hayek who was sitting on xi jinping's bedside night table and so it was austrian economics driving i doubt it is but it would be a it would be an interesting irony can i and just very quickly thomas for the the lay listener can you just paint a very quick picture of why trouble in the real estate sector is of such singular importance to china i mean no no country wants to see problems in your real estate sector. Of course, we saw in 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 in, in our own financing of real estate in, in 2007, eight, we had some problems. But just very mm -hmm. quickly, why is real estate so uniquely important for China, or for the economy at least? Sure. From the household perspective, it's important because it's basically their sole savings vehicle for retirement for most people. There are some people who have decent state pensions and the provision of, of state healthcare has improved, certainly. But for most people, their savings are tied up very much in, in the house or more than one house in many cases. Home ownership is much higher in China than it is in any other economy at a comparable stage of development or indeed to most developed economies. And so for households, housing is more important in China than basically anywhere else. It's also more important because you know China produces all of the things necessary to make these houses. So you think about US or Europe, some portion of the materials going into housing have to be local, cement specifically. But you can buy steel from other places. And most of the electronic machinery and equipment going into, into housing is going to be from China. So, you know, all of your little fuse boxes and wiring and things like that. China is producing all that itself. So when property construction slows down or speeds up, as it did from about 2 million units at the start of the 2000s to maybe 11 or 12 million towards the peak, that's fantastic for the rest of the materials producing sectors. So you get a boost to construction, tens of millions of people working in the construction sector, another millions, if not tens of millions, working in material producing sectors, steel, glass, cement, copper, all of these kinds of things. So the whole vast swathes of the heavy industrial economy were built basically to serve housing. And when housing had its little downturns to serve infrastructure projects. And so if you get some situation like this where, and there is a lag to it, so if we've got sales down 50%, starts down worse than that, 
Real estate investment is down only about 10% from 2019. So you've got your inputs and your outputs to the construction kind of pipeline. But that pipeline, if the inputs are shrinking as much as they are, will shrink itself over time quite considerably. So, so far, steel production has been okay this year. We've started to see glass and cement come down a, a little bit. But the really bad story for those sectors will happen in the future if we continue to, to get conditions running as they are running. And so that's the that's the specter that is haunting the Chinese economy at the moment. The idea that this 30% plus of economic activity will be directly affected by the housing slowdown. And then everything else gets affected because you know people are employed, they have wages, the wage growth slows, they get unemployed, and then you get this knock-on effect that is very large. I mean, there's a nice tie-in because obviously the real estate sector is at the heart of the downturn now and at the heart of your report, which will, this is just a teaser, but at the end, I think we'll talk about the, the big implication of what dwindling capital, what, what sort of dwindling resources going into the real estate sector means. And in some ways, it sounds like a good thing. And that's been, you know, for a long time, there's been criticisms that China's, you know, economic growth was over-reliant on the real estate sector. That's true. But as always, the challenges, if not real estate, then then what? But we'll get into that a bit later. So turning now to the report, you combed through 6,032 offshore-listed non-financial firm annual reports. Onshore and offshore. O- onshore and offshore. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to look at basically what the picture is for corporates since since COVID. There's a lot of insight and conclusions you've come to, but I, I wanted to just at a very high level, and then we'll go into each of these in more detail, but, but ask you if you could just give your sort of thumbnail sketch of what did you find? What were the big sort of takeaways from this research? Sure. Yeah. So the reason that we kind of wanted to look at it in these terms is basically that the way that capital flows in the economy is, it's not always evident from the surface, but it is something that that the leaders in Beijing are really thinking about a lot on a day on a kind of day to day month to month basis because they're thinking in terms of industrial policy and in terms of where should the available resource of the economy be flowing in order to generate the sort of economy and the sort of society that they want to to create both in terms of you know improving people's lifestyles and increasing their resilience particularly to kind of external shocks and so the the reason that it, it's interesting to think in the in those terms is that it kind of starts to connect these disparate strands of the various kind of crises which hit China's corporate sector over the course of the pandemic, and so you have kind of four main ones basically. You have this profit shock, which hit consumer focused sectors very hard as a consequence of repeated COVID restrictions and lockdowns, and then this within that a kind of intentional regulatory shock to the internet platforms as a consequence of the crackdowns that really savaged Tencent, Alibaba, and Co's earnings and profits. You got leverage shock, which was the crackdown on financing to real estate developers, the so-called three red lines, which then translated into an unintentional confidence spiral among home buyers, which has just completely crushed sector profits for real estate developers and at the same time crushed their access to capital. You have a broader capital raising shock that is a consequence of a number of factors, you know, the tech crackdown, COVID policy, US and Chinese regulatory actions, and then geopolitical risks and, and temperature heating up that have made it far, far more difficult for Chinese firms to raise funds from foreign investors in Hong Kong and in the US. And then finally, you have this industrial policy shock, which was there has long been a in 
intentional channeling of resources towards certain sectors, uh, new energy, electric vehicles, and most most notably semiconductors. That industrial policy push has been strongly intensified by U.S. sanctions, as kind of China doubles down on on industrial policies that are supposed to accelerate the domestic production of technology hardware that that they are worried about losing access to in the in the near term, and some of which they already have lost access to. So those four shocks together have kind of combined to create a very significant shift in the marginal annual flows of capital to different sectors of the economy. I don't know how to ask this question in a way that will maybe be coherent enough, but I'm, I I wanted to understand the role of COVID in this these four shocks. Maybe ask it a, a counterfactual, which is imagine a world in which COVID didn't emerge from Wuhan, how much of the shock of, of these four shocks do you think would be with us today? I think it would be very significantly less. Okay. I think most importantly, I think without COVID, you don't get the same wholesale destruction of the service sector and, and consumer-focused industries, which have has such a negative impact on people's employment and income expectations and livelihood. And that kind of multi-year trauma that households went through has has been, I think, quite a strong input into their falling risk appetite, both for housing and for other kinds of assets. So COVID is really important on that front. I think also COVID really helped to dial up tensions with the US. Yeah. And in general, kind of China's, the, the, the feelings about China and the rest of the world in a way which feeds back into this toxic negative feedback loop. So yeah, I think COVID was really important. And, you know, maybe not so much COVID, but the way that China handled it relative to other countries. And, you know, I think very few places handled it super well. But yeah, I think it was really important. So if we can just go maybe through the four shocks in more detail, I think we might we might spend a little bit longer time on the capital raising and industrial policy shocks. But just starting with the with the profit shocks, or um, excuse me, or the profit shock. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you can talk about the winners and losers in terms of retained earnings. Not not all sectors of the economy did as poorly uh, as others, obviously. And again, folks, listeners can't see the chart I'm looking on on page three, mm-hmm. which shows just a, a significant fall off in real estate, which matches the story we were just talking about earlier. But I wonder if you can unpack a little bit who was hit most and who has done relatively well in terms of retained earnings. Sure. So yeah, real estate's done absolutely terribly. Energy and materials firms did very well in 2021 and 2022 in an inflationary environment. Consumer goods and services firms did pretty bad. You saw a very significant fall in in the year-on-year change in in retained earnings. And then the other kind of big winners were capital goods and tech hardware firms who were experiencing, who were really kind of riding on the back of a big run-up in prices of electronic components globally, as you've got this big surge of purchases of computers and phones and things like that in the pandemic era. That translates into a worse situation environment for private firms than for SOEs. Right. So you have a lot of private participation in the real estate sector. They got absolutely hammered, you know, Evergrande being private. And perceptions of the riskiness of developers really kind of widen the gap then between what kind of developers home buyers were willing to buy from 
so yeah, like that has had very significant impacts. But more broadly, so you know, you, consumer goods and services tend to be private driven. Okay. The the distinction I was going to ask is: is that a nature of it, private versus state-owned enterprise, or is it because SOEs tend to be in certain? You you mentioned energy and materials. A lot of those are dominated yep. by SOEs, so they're more upstream versus more consumer-facing private sector companies. Yeah, a lot of it's sectoral, and then you have within the within the real estate sector, there is a discrimination based on perceptions of implicit guarantee as well. Right, right. Shock two, deleveraging. One of the interesting things was talking about the accumulation of non-debt liabilities. I mean, this is one of the sort of peculiar things of China's real estate market, which is pre-sales, which is not something we traditionally do here. So you buy the home before it is shovels even in the ground. But I wonder if you could talk a bit about how this non-debt liability picture has has changed. And then I think a, a second question is, how do you unwind that growth in non-debt liabilities or can you? Yeah, it's extremely, extremely difficult. So you have kind of two non-debt liability problems, basically, in the in the Chinese economy. One of them is real estate specific, and that tends to be focused in the private sector firms. So private sector developers, there was a, a boom in debt issuance, bond issuance, that I think was kind of 2016, 2017, 2018, where private firms were able to issue issue bonds and where their financing situation was decently good. And so you've got this run-up of both bank loans and bond issuance that led to rising debt-to-equity ratio. Then all of that basically fell off really hard from, I, th- I think it's mid-2018 or so. And essentially, since then, they haven't really been able to issue bonds. And they've also been squeezed and squeezed on bank financing as well. And so what you tend to find was, the, as these firms recognized that they needed to keep growing as fast as they could, and that basically anyone small would fail or get swallowed up. They just push more and more into into using non-debt liabilities instead, which is pre-sales. But it's also extending the terms of payment to to suppliers. They just wouldn't pay them for ages and ages. So you get all of these various kinds of non-interest-bearing non-debt liabilities that private firms have really been relying on. And so since 2018, the, the ratio of non-debt liabilities to equity has been extremely high, particularly for private developers, and just hasn't really fallen even as the debt to equity ratio has fallen pretty decently, actually, we're back to levels that you saw about a decade ago. And that makes the sector as a whole look healthier, but it just isn't true because of all of these these other forms. Outside the real estate sector is interesting because there the problem is much more of an SOE issue. And so in government policy pronouncements, one of the things that you've seen for the past three or four years, definitely three years, has been this emphasis on local governments and SOEs paying their suppliers because they've been using their size in influence market power to delay payments to suppliers as well. And so you have this very large, probably in the tune of 8 to 10 trillion RMB that are just owed by SOEs to smaller firms in the economy that represents a very significant drain on liquidity for, for SMEs and, and private sector. So those are your two kinds of, of non-debt liability problem that China has, and they're both extremely hard to unwind. Coming back to the sort of high-level look at this, again, if I were looking at this this chart you have on page four, which is looking at the debt-to-equity ratio for non-financial firms by sector, and as you say, mm-hmm. this is the one that shows basically pretty consistent, aggressive, linear growth in debt-to-equity ratio in the real estate sector until about 2018. And indeed, we saw some policies put in place by Beijing in 2020, the the sort of three three red lines, clearly signaling that they saw 
leverage in the real estate sector is problematic. I look at this chart and I'm, I'm disassociated from the current economic news, let's imagine. And I would say this is a success story, right? Mm -hmm. This is for a long time, there's been significant criticism, including by external analysts uh, about leverage building in the system. And of course it was rampant in real estate. What went wrong here, especially knowing that this was in some sense, especially when the three red line policies was put into place in, I forget when that was, summer of 2020, the wrong time basically, but nonetheless, when it was put in place, did did Beijing move too early and aggressively to deleverage at, at precisely the wrong moment, i.e. when COVID was coming and the country was moving into full lockdown, which was going to seize up the real estate sector anyway? If you were advising, you know, if you had a time machine and you were going back to 2018, what what would have been the path to deleverage more sustainably? Yeah, so I think there were there were two gambles basically that were made in 2020 um, that pay, that worked for a little while and then they didn't work really catastrophically. The first gamble was basically that, and I, I think the timing is not terrible. So they they're looking at the at the world. And seeing that China at that point is actually dealing with COVID really well, the zero COVID policy worked pretty fantastically. So I was I was there through the, the whole period and we had about a month or so, maybe six weeks of pretty hard lockdown at the beginning, after which life really went back basically to normal and continued that way through basically the start of 2022. And so you had a situation where they, the Chinese government was feeling, okay, well, we're handling COVID really well. And actually, at the same time, our exports are going completely gangbusters because everyone in the rest of the world is having these terrible supply chain issues and production halts. And so people are just going to buy stuff from us indefinitely. And they, you know, that they really did. You know, that export boom lasted quite a long while. And even though the growth has, has kind of slowed significantly and, and it's shrinking in nominal terms now, in volume terms, it's still way above where we were pre-pandemic, which is Basically, until um, until COVID hit, was really you wouldn't have guessed, given that, that we were in the midst of the U.S. tariff situation. There wasn't the expectation that that exports was going to be a, a strong, healthy driver of growth. So you had both of those things going on. They felt like the domestic economy was fine because they'd handled COVID no problem, and they were crowing about it from every rooftop. And at the same time, they were they had this big export boom. So they thought to themselves okay, this is actually a great time to kind of push the pace on deleveraging for the property sector. The problem was, of course, that exports didn't last forever. And then you had 2022, these very big, very disruptive lockdowns that really shook economic growth and household confidence. And at that point, what had happened in basically every other, at the end of every other property downturn that I suspect that they expected would happen again is that they really viewed household ebullience on the property front as being like a beach ball that, you know, the hard work was pushing it underwater. But as soon as you kind of let your hand off a little bit, it would pop back out and the market would rush up again. And so they, they figured they were doing the difficult work. And if, if they needed to, they'd just do that again. Uh, and it turned out not to be true that there was some like elastic limit or buoyancy limit to, to household confidence and willingness to participate that basically hit the skids at the point that property developers started getting in real bad situation and entering this not this like uh, project stalling downward spiral. Um, and so I didn't think that they, they really expected that to happen. And so the combination of all of those things together is what kind of made these gambles really fail in a, in a catastrophic fashion. 
Let's move to shock three, which is the shock to corporate's ability to raise capital. And the first is to talk about, and maybe this is where geopolitics comes into it, but this is both an onshore and an offshore problem for companies. Maybe talk about the offshore piece first. What's different now about the ability of a given Chinese firm, their ability to raise capital from offshore investors? What's changed and how significant is the change? Sure. You've got a, a, a number of things going on, but it's basically a US-China story. And it's basically a, a function of regulatory tightening on both sides of the Pacific, creating an environment in which that's fed into itself and in which investors have just proved extremely loath to uh, put any significant money into into new stocks. So the first part of this was a combination that happened at basically the same time of the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act passing in the US at the end of 2020. And at the same time, the Alibaba, so the Ant Group IPO getting next at the last minute, followed early in 2020 by some pretty large fines on Baba and stern warnings to the rest of the sector. All of that, I think, could have been contained. And actually, um, Internet platform prices continue rising through January, even after um, these kind of initial sparks. The big kind of real catalyst moment was the DD IPO. And you can sort of see things falling off really fast after that. I think there was the perception among, certainly amongst the DD management, that this was kind of business as usual, and it's a cat and mouse game with with domestic regulators. And you kind of push them as much as you can, and they push back a little bit. But at the end of the day, we'll, we're fast and we're smart, and we'll we'll stay ahead of the bureaucrats. And that turned out to be absolutely, you know, real mistaking of the temperature, basically. And so, cyberspace administration, which had been the kind of more aggressive regulatory entity up to that point, just felt extremely kind of enabled and empowered by the anger of clear anger of the top leadership at this just complete disregard for um, for the policy that's being line that was being kind of pushed by Beijing. And then it was just pile on zone. So every regulatory body in the country just felt, you know, if we're going to stay on Xi Jinping's good side, we need to hit these guys as hard as we possibly can. And that, you know, it's the talk of, you know, spiritual pollution and gaming, the tech sector, sorry, the ed tech sector getting completely smashed. Like, so that that's the period. And so at the same time, you have running this complete destruction of or well, complete destruction of certain parts of the onshore tech sector and very, very significant trammeling of the of the prospects of other parts um, from a whole direction, uh, range of directions. And, you know, your best case scenario as an investor at that point looking in was that, okay, well, the growth prospects for these firms are going to be quite significantly lower than we had expected them to be. Worst case scenario is you, you were worried that, okay, well, there's going to be some kind of nationalization or there's going to be, you know, that these guys are going to go the same way as the ed tech sector and, you know, just the complete in- industry destruction. Like that was always, those kind of apocalyptic expectations were always, I think, over-egging the pudding somewhat. Like the first the first of those two prospects always seemed to us to be the most likely, just because, you know, large sections of the e-commerce sphere are considered to be really important by Chinese government, particularly during pandemic when people were stuck at home. But in any case, you've got that going on. And then at the same time, you have this ticking time clock of the delisting from the US angle. And so this is all kind of going on and playing out. 
And as a consequence, you know, you basically get a complete hiatus in any kind of large-scale listing of Chinese firms in the U.S. Hong Kong kind of survives a bit longer, and you still get some listings down there. But over time, particularly at the moment where you get this kind of second massive catalyst, which is the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine and the perceptions that China is queuing way, way too close to comfort towards support military and otherwise to Russia in a way which could put them into the box of just this, the kind of complete financial sanctioning that Russian assets suffered. So those things all together were this kind of rolling snowball, which over time just got people really, really worried about the prospects for, for Chinese financial assets, both in their kind of internal earnings generation possibility going forwards, but then maybe more important in the potential for, you know, just the US government telling investors, you, you cannot hold these assets. Either explicitly or for a lot of firms, and this is particularly true for kind of public pension firms, firms uh, you know, like teachers, those kinds of things, where there's just this very large potential rep reputational risk if they have significant exposure to China, things go wrong, and then they, you know, they just look like not only total idiots, but traitors. I know the your data only extends into 2022, so this is a little bit prognostic. But I, you know, PCAOB reached a uh, an agreement, an, a tentative initial agreement that forestalls the mass delisting of Chinese corporates. China has been raising the, I don't know if it's the white, or Beijing has been raising not not the white flag, but at least has been sending out vibes to the private sector that you know we're done with the you know unilateral punitive actions against the private sector and the tech sector in particular. How much do you think, given what you just laid out as a case for what led to or contributed to some of this challenges in, in fundraising, what do you think a truce or detente on the delisting and China at least trying to say, we're, we're not coming for you anymore, private sector tech companies, does that change the trajectory of this story? No, unfortunately not. So the data so far this year shows almost no fundraising in Hong Kong or US and public markets and VC and, and PE flows, which is the other significant part of this story, have dropped to basically zero as well. So in part, that's because you have these, as of the end of March, we have these new regulations on overseas listing, which require all, any company that, that wants to list overseas has to go through CSRC and then also get the permission of any other relevant regulatory body, which... If you are the kind of firm which is interesting to foreign investors, you probably are somewhat consumer related and you probably have a pretty big information dimension, let's call it, whether it's AI or you know, sort of consumer finance, any sort of consumer thing that where your profitability basically relies on knowing uh, your customers in a way which honestly most of us would be uncomfortable with. Right? <laughs> so it, it's a, you know, the kind of co companies which are dealing with large amounts of data to a degree which makes them attractive, or also the companies which are trading very close in a lot of cases towards national security lines, which remain extremely blurry and dangerous. Um, China's focus on national security continues to tighten um, and secrecy. Uh, and at the same time that they're making these overtures of friendliness to the private sector in general, we've had these multiple stories of raids on Offices in Shanghai, in particular, you know, major uh, global and U.S. institutions, and so essentially at this point, as of the latest, my latest temperature taking from the chambers of commerce and such, there's just not a lot of confidence. They don't really believe what they're being told, and 
even if they do domestic, the domestic management of these companies believe what they're being told. They just can't sell a positive China story to the global boards. Yeah. What's the picture for state-owned enterprises? Uh, so SOEs never really relied on overseas funding. So they've just continued to, to raise capital pretty happily on domestic markets. It, and they have better access to bank financing too. So it hasn't been such a big problem for SOEs. This has really been a private sector issue. Let's move to shock number four, which is the intensification of industrial policy. You laid out, when I asked you earlier for just high-level summary of this, you, you mentioned some of this, but I wonder if you can go a, a little bit more in, in depth into this, which is what's changed since 2020? How focused are Beijing's efforts to steer capital? And what are the means by which this this capital is, is finding its way into capital goods and tech hardware? Is this policy signals? Is this spontaneous action by investors who just understand where green light, yellow light, red lights are uh, in terms of Beijing's preference? Um, so how big is the magnitude of this shift and, and by what mechanisms is this capital moving from some industries to others? Yeah. So generally when people, and particularly sort of the, the more government associated think tanks talk about Chinese industrial policy. Historically, it's always focused on subsidies, explicit government subsidies. And if you look at the the kind of quantities on that front, you can see that capital goods and tech hardware receive somewhere north of about 2.5% of gross profit in, in explicit government subsidies. This is the, the 6,000 company sample, which is significant and you know pretty significant in terms of ROA and ROE. But it's small in the grand scheme of things compared to other sectors would be much, much less. So we're talking less than 1% for energy, infrastructure, real estate, consumer goods and services things kind of somewhere in the middle. So the subsidy story definitely paints the picture of a strong preference for capital goods and tech hardware that moves the needle to some degree, but which isn't necessarily, you know, it doesn't constitute, we're talking a few hundred billion RMB rather than trillions. So it's, it's important, but it's more important than anything as a kind of signaling mechanism and a returns boosting mechanism, which then creates a reality that, that private investors can respond to. The second and probably more important element in this governmental uh, industrial preference is tax rate. So real estate industry pay has historically paid somewhere between 40 and 50% of gross profit in net taxes and fees. Energy and materials, around 30%. Uh, consumer goods and services, somewhere around 15 And then capital goods and tech, tech hardware, as of 2022, less than 10%. So the um, corporate tax rate is supposed to be about 25% for kind of general reference. So there's this very, very strong kind of tech preferential tax policies that are all associated with strategic emerging industries and companies getting these sweetheart deals. Semiconductor sector, just for reference, pays, I think, zero in net terms, maybe even a little bit less than zero. And so if you put these things together, two things together, you have subsidies equivalent to, yeah, maybe two and a half percent of gross profit. And then these mm. very, very substantial tax savings, what you get at the other end is a picture of, of return on assets and return on investor capital, which is very favorable to the kind of sectors which Beijing wants to encourage. So then when we get to talking about the kind of rationality of capital allocation and distribution in China, and you're thinking about you know how much capital are firms getting relative to their apparent relative performance, 
it actually looks pretty decent. The problem is that that relative performance kind of landscape has been quite significantly distorted by government intervention to begin with. You imagine, though, if I were a policymaker in Beijing and I was looking at pages six and seven of this report, which for the audience is the one where you lay out the subsidy piece, but then the the, the charts on page seven are looking at which sectors dominate capital markets or which are doing where the movement is in the capital markets. Mm-hmm. This is exactly the story I would want if I were Xi Jinping, which is we're seeing we're seeing a movement from capital raised by non-listed financial firms increasingly going to tech 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 hardware, twenty five percent versus nineteen percent a year ago. And then hold on a second, I'm going to read from the second one, which I think is in twenty twenty two alone. Tech hardware sectors dominated onshore IPOs, 43% of all funds raised in 2022. So maybe just trying to segue this industrial policy conversation to the big so what's, I guess my first so what question to you is, this is a success case for Xi Jinping, right? Uh, I think we've all intuited that his general critique of spontaneous market mechanisms as capital, you know, aggregators and channelers is they there's no assurance that they go to the the quote unquote right strategic sectors that are needed to overcome productivity challenges and increasingly to fight fight China's way through what they see as an embargo strategy from the United States. So given what you've just demonstrated here, and also if you look at, as you mentioned, the, this, a lot of this capital is moving into firms that have you know, higher returns on invested capital. So at question number one is, why is this not a good thing? Or at least from Xi Jinping's perspective. Yeah, to some degree it is. So if we look at some of the successes, or let's say the most notable success of the Chinese economy this year, the brightest spot has been electric vehicle production. So you have this very rapid replacement in domestic sales of internal combustion engine vehicles with EVs that have gone from, well, somewhere in the like 5 to 10% of car sales a couple of years ago to we're now approaching like 30 plus percent incredibly fast and very impressive phenomenon and at the same time you know shipping probably something like half a million of these vehicles a month out to export markets that's a real you know a triumph of industrial policy there you could also make the the same case for solar panels other um, battery technology right so all of this stuff has been extremely successful as a supply side policy it's it's done really well the problem is that you can get to a point where your uh, level of supply has left demand so far behind that you encounter some pretty significant problems. And so they just don't really think about the economy in the kind of Keynesian terms that generally the rest of the world thinks about it, where you do need to worry about aggregate demand at the same time as you're as you're worrying about supply. Uh, China essentially thinks about it as supply creates its own demand. Don't worry about it. Just keep pumping it into the right places and we'll all be fine. That the, the the sign that that's not working is the kind of plunge into deflationary territory that we've seen this year, and that is kind of inevitable if one of your you know three major sources of of demand, i.e. the property sector, is in the kind of straits that it is. That will only get worse as as we talked before of the linkages into into household income and consumption too. So it has worked to some degree. But it's just outpaced the demand side of the economy to a degree which just creates this big overhang of potential crisis in which 
it's fine you being able to produce all of the electric vehicles and and advanced chips and things in the world but you do need someone to buy them at the end of the day and there is a danger that 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 households are going to be unable to to do that whilst at the same time china's relationship with major trading partners has deteriorated particularly with the united states to a degree that so for instance there are apparently punitive tariffs coming on transship solar panel shipments from southeast asia and the other countries that china's been shipping panels through to avoid the xinjiang restrictions and so as other countries get more and more annoyed by china and smarter at figuring out these indirect routes of 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 import you have trouble of of external demand as well so that's the challenge. So you could say, to some degree, it's worked great as industrial policy, but that does have to fit into a broader um, conception of the economy that takes demand and supply into account. The second, so what, and maybe the final, so what, and this is actually just a point you made in the slide deck, but I'll frame it as a question, which is to Xi Jinping's view that, well, this is working. And if we could link together now the current state of the real estate market and the likely declining share of of economic activity that that's going to encompass and this movement towards hard tech capital goods one of the points you make which i just ask if you could resummarize it and then and then draw it out a bit which is the real estate sector was so large and this these you know strategic and emerging industries aren't nearly sizable enough to be able to replace the role of the real estate sector. Can you frame that more succinctly than I just did and talk about why that is such an important challenge for management of China's political economy? Yeah. So the challenge is basically that you have this, you know, so like the, one of the charts on here shows the 12 month rolling sum of, of fixed asset investment in the statistics. And you have real estate uh, investment running at somewhere around the 17 and a half trillion RMB. And then you have, even after a very significant increase in investment by capital goods and tech hardware firms, it's running around 10 million uh, to 10 trillion. Um, and so, so far, the decline in, in real estate investment has come down by two, three, maybe even approaching, yeah, probably two or three trillion on a, on a rolling basis. But that's going to get significantly worse if the problem is not addressed. You know, if we if we see it drop by half, which is what you know sales and starts are doing right now, then you have a decline in real estate investment, which is basically equivalent, almost equivalent to the entirety of investment by the capital goods and tech hardware sector. So you would need that sector to double um, in order to make up the slack. And to some degree, you can patch some of this over with infrastructure investment. The problem with that is that the local government fiscal position is so closely linked to real estate sales and land sales that we're already seeing a bit of fiscal contraction from local governments this year, even in, in the face of all of these problems, basically because they just don't have very much money left. And so the central government can exhort and push them to borrow more um, through special purpose bond issuance. But if they're kind of, if they're, general financial position is so stressed and strained by the fact that you know there've been a lot of tax cuts offered to firms either originally to try and get them into their local area as this kind of part of this jockeying and competition and then more recently as part of a the last two two years of quite aggressive fiscal loosening by cutting tax rates on firms that there's just not very much left in the cupboard and so consequently 
there's a risk that any liquidity which is made available by central government through these special purpose bond quotas in, in particular to, to local government will just get sucked into filling gaps. And, it's, and the, consequently, if you have a situation where real estate is suffering that badly, it's going to be very, very difficult to sustain high rates of infrastructure investment growth without the central government taking on large amounts of new debt, which they are have, have proven to be very loath to do. So that's the problem. It's just a you know simple kind of arithmetic of aggregate demand and the fact that real estate is so big that you just you can really struggle to fill that gap if it opens up in the in the way which it really looks to be doing this yet. Final question: Three years from now, you're doing an update on this report. What's your guess on what the top line story is going to be? It's a totally unfair question, but mm-hmm. this feels like a such an an awkward moment to try to make assumptions about China because everything, all, all the plates are spinning right now mm-hmm. in ways that are confusing. And even the heuristics we normally use for the ability of policymakers to yet again swoop in and sort of sort it all out or pave it over or kick the can. Clearly, there's a lot of, you know, there are areas where there's lots of ammunition left to, to do that if if the leadership showed acute awareness of how bad the problem was, especially Xi Jinping, and decided that the prioritization was economic stability. But I can't tell in the relative weighting. Mm -hmm. My sense is Xi Jinping is probably thinking, wow, we're still going to base, we're going to hit the growth target. And we're gearing up for intensified geopolitical struggle with with the United States. So we've got to be able to China's own version of, of walk and chew gum at the same time. But nonetheless, it's very confusing. Uh, is it as confusing for you? And and where do you, where do you think this will be in in a few years? Oh, it's undoubtedly a confusing subject. So, like in this, let's say a three year time horizon that takes us through twenty twenty six. So, there is a there are a number of scenarios that you could imagine. One of which is that, as a consequence of that things get significantly worse this year and that property sector just continues to fall apart and that at some point in the hopefully next couple of months that shocks them into a kind of realization that this kind of over, this overly ideological mode in which they've kind of straightjacketed themselves is at risk of destroying or undermining the the really important policy priorities which they the, you know, legitimately and sincerely hold about making people's lives better and making China kind of secure and resilient against external pressure. And so they, even, you know, kind of in the midst of all of, of some of the illusions that we built around themselves, recognize that they do need to grow at a certain pace to achieve that, that there needs to be sufficient employment. And so consequently, the, the hope would be that they realize that soon enough to put a sufficient floor under the potential risks in the property uh, sector, which would involve probably some degree of, at this point, some degree of, of guarantee to that developers are not going to go bust and that home buyers, don't worry, you will get the houses that you're buying, combined probably with some kind of pretty sizable fiscal stimulus. So that would be the positive version. In that scenario, what you would hope would be we get a little bit of improvement in external demand going into next year that they manage to kind of get property sales running at around you know a more sustainable level which is still much lower than 2019 but is higher by some degree than than we're at today and that the property firms 
you know, given this kind of safety margin and guarantee, you're able to basically just keep things ticking over while shrinking their balance sheet. In that scenario, and I think basically in any scenario, the amount of capital and support going to to capital um, goods firms and tech harbor firms continues to increase as a proportion of, of economic activity. In the kind of downside scenario, it would increase even faster, not because they're getting more resources, but because everything else is falling apart at the seams. Um, so I think it is if if we don't see more urgent and muscular central government response to this crisis, there is a distinct possibility of growth falling to basically nothing into next year and staying there like for a significant period of time. Just because you know yeah. all of your negative feedback loops basically kick into effect, people's wages aren't growing, they just you know stick everything in the bank, there's not consumption falls very significantly. That that sort of scenario, the kind of doom loop. Uh, the so that's the kind of the downside scenario. Not only because of the potential consequences domestically for China and for people's livelihoods and and for the you know global demand, but because you know that is also the sort of scenario historically that we've tended to see, particularly autocratic states act in extremely aggressive ways on the international stage, and you know there are plenty of actors on the Chinese side and sad to say probably on the US side as well who are kind of shifting into a position where they quite welcome a conflict. Well, thanks, Tom, for that That optimistic ending. (laughs) (laughs) This is really great, great work, like everything that you and your comrades at at Gavical are are putting out, just super thoughtful, objective, clear-eyed, detailed. So I really appreciate the work you're doing. Also appreciate your willingness to come on and uh, field a bunch of ignoramus questions about uh, China's corporate sector. Hope to have you on in three years to see. I've written down every one of your predictions. So have you come on in three years and see see how you fared. But th- thanks for your time. Thanks for your research and um, look forward to reading your future work. Ah, my pleasure. Nice talking to you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 